Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Colin Klein lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Australia. His new book, What the Body Commands, The Imperative Theory of Pain, is just out from the MIT Press. Nothing seems so obviously true as the claim that pains feel bad, that they are painful, that pain and suffering go together. And yet, argues Klein, pain and suffering can come apart, and we need an account of pain that can explain why. On the imperative theory of pain, a pain is a protective imperative whose content is to protect the body or body part. For example, don't put weight on that left ankle. In this accessible yet vigorous defense of the imperative theory, Klein argues that pains do not represent the causes of pain, do not inform us about tissue damage, and should not be identified with the painful sensations. He shows us how his account is sufficient to distinguish pain locations, qualities, and intensities, and he deals with cases in which people report feeling pain, but not being the least bit motivated to do anything about it. He also considers the problem of masochistic pleasure, where we seek to act in ways that do not protect the body. And finally, he addresses the question, why do pains hurt? Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Colin Klein. Are you there? I am. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Nice to uh, talk with you, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks. uh, Delighted to be here. Um, So, this is a a great book. I had a. It's it was a wonderful read. um, Very easy to read, easy to follow, and uh, well argued. And also, you know, obviously a bit contentious in certain ways. So, um, I'm looking forward to to talking about it uh, with you. Um, before we get to the actual imperative theory of pain, which you're defending in the book, um, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, um, how you came to philosophy, how you came to this area of research, and um, how you came to write this particular book? Sure. So uh, how I got to philosophy, I've always been interested in the mind. Uh, I think the mind is still the, the last great mystery to be solved. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania, and I had a great opportunity where I majored both in philosophy and in an interdisciplinary program they had called Scientific and Philosophical Studies of Mind. Uh, and that let me do both a lot of philosophy and also empirically oriented work. Uh, as for pain, uh, when I was about 13, I broke my ankle very badly in wrestling practice. And so that's also given me a lot of good examples over the years, and that's why the book focuses so much on ankle pain. Uh, But when I was in the hospital, they gave me morphine, and I had an experience, which turns out to be quite common, where 
Uh, I was laying there. My ankle, as far as I can tell, still hurt, but I didn't care about it anymore. I was, as I sort of discovered, I was up here. It was down there. Uh, I didn't know what one had to do with the other. And I didn't think about that much until I had a philosophy class. And Daniel Dennett actually talks about this in, I believe, Why Why You Can't Make a Computer That Feels Pain. And so I talked to my philosophy advisor at the time, Bennett Helm, who had also written a lot on pain, and that's kind of how the interest started, and I've just been sort of thinking about it and writing about it ever since. Okay, so this this book kind of brings together, you know, you have published a number of uh, you know previous papers, uh, but this kind of brings it all together and provides a, a you know, kind of a more thorough defense uh, of the theory and elaboration of the theory as well. Um, so you divide... Um, what the body commands into roughly three parts. Um, First, you establish a sort of general framework that you call homeostatic sensations of the body um, and the general idea of of imperatives, uh, an imperative content. Um, You also distinguish pain from suffering, which is one of the uh, features of your account that um, many philosophers, at least, will, will find uh, both interesting and, and perhaps surprising and to some extent counterintuitive. Um, then you go into, you know, how to uh, elaborate the imperative theory and show how it can uh, give, you know, it has the resources to distinguish different sorts of pains, you know, their intensities, their qualities, um, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, it, you you address a number of very interesting um, objections, including uh, the sort of case you just mentioned, the morphine pain, where somebody, uh, you know, has this feeling, as you described it, the pain's down there, and I'm up here, and, you know, I could care less, um, which is certainly, you know, counterintuitive for, for most pains. Um, and you also, of course, discuss masochistic pain, um, so or pleasure, I should say. Um so let's start start with the d- general picture, just to lay the framework for an imperative theory, um, you know, homeostatic sensations and um, imperatives in general. You could say something about that? Yeah, sure. So just as sort of more general background to start off with, uh, the picture in the book, the sort of main claim, imperativism, is the idea that pains have a content, but that content is something like a command rather than, say, a representation of the world. So the pain of a sprained ankle says something like, don't put weight on this ankle. Um, So that's what I'm trying to defend in the book. And I actually think pains are not the only things with imperative content. I actually think it applies to this whole class of bodily sensations that I start by marking off as what I call the homeostatic sensations. Um, So as you mentioned, these are the sensations whose function is to kind of maintain bodily parameters within some range. Now, sometimes your body can do that on its own, as it were, without any help, right? So there are a lot of kind of internal ion concentrations and things like this that they go on all the time. You're not aware of them, um, and in part because there's nothing you can really do about them. But there are many things, like, so suppose your fluid levels drop, um, so you don't have enough water. Uh, You can... Your body can do some things with that. It can, you know, stop sweating and so on. But really, it needs you to take action. So you need to go get more water. And so what I think happens in the way the body solves this problem is there are sensations like thirst. And the content of something like thirst is a command, go drink water. If you follow that command, then under ordinary circumstances, and that's always an important proviso, 
then under ordinary circumstances, you'll solve the problem that gave rise to the sensation in the first place. Um, so that's what's going on with homeostatic sensations. And then what I want to do is identify pain as one of those homeostatic sensations. And that's why we ought to also think about it as an imperative. Okay, so one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading was, you know, a lot of your examples of, of these commands were, um, you know, don't, don't put weight on that ankle. And I kept thinking, um, would it have been better to maybe think instead of, uh, you know, commanding to do something, to take action, which is you know, sort of how you um, uh, describe it most generally, I was thinking maybe, you know, why wouldn't you instead characterize it in terms of, you know, inhibiting, uh, mm. particularly given the emphasis that you give on recuperation and the role of of, of pain, uh, the recovery period, rather than, you know, we, we as philosophers, at least, and certainly other, you know, clinical people thinking about pain, we think about the moment at which we start to feel it rather than the whole period of recuperation. And and one of the things that you, you correctly emphasize is that uh, this command of pain is, you know, don't do stuff that's going to prevent or make the recovery worse or something along those lines. So, uh, so these are sorts of omissions rather than actions, and mm-hmm. so my my general question was just why not think of pain then in terms of inhibiting rather than you know telling you to do something, you know telling you don't do something. Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, as a bit of background, and as you say, it's quite right. I want to focus in the book on the role of pain and recuperation. And I was really inspired in this by part by uh, the work of Patrick Wall, who's one of the two big names in pain science in the 20th century. Uh, and he emphasizes a lot that role of pain, you know, in keeping you resting, um, keeping you from injure- re-injuring yourself or from using body parts that are sort of healed but still weak, that sort of thing. Uh, and he actually, his picture is very much a kind of almost, as you describe, a kind of inhibitory one. So I think that's the primary role of pain. Um, And I like that. And I think that's very important. And, you know, I argue in the book that that recuperation phase is this sort of primary biological importance of pain. And in my in earlier versions in defending the imperative theory, so for example, my 2007 paper, I actually did put in in terms of what I called prescription commands. So it's commands that rule out certain kinds of movement. Uh, I did that for a couple of reasons. Partly I thought I needed it to solve the problem of pain asymbolia, which we may talk about a bit later, or morphine pain at the time. Uh, but and also, but I think it's a you know it's a very relatively clean way to do it. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of counter or what appear to be counter examples. That you know, I had a story about, uh, but I think putting in terms of positive protection makes for a cleaner story. Uh, so Mora Tumulti, I think, was the first person to really call my attention to a lot of these. So truly visceral pain, so menstrual cramps or kidney stones. Sometimes these are parts of your body where. Uh, you don't have any voluntary control over them, so it's hard to see what the command "don't do something with this" could do. Uh, I did have a story about that, but I think it's um, protection is cleaner for a lot of those. The other problem, I mean, 
sometimes, you know, Newton had his apple and I, you know, ran into the corner of a table with my testicles one night, uh, going to the kitchen. Uh, and, you know, as one does, doubled over and there's sort of particular guarding motion uh, that people should be familiar with. And reflecting upon that in the light of day, I thought, well, there are actually a lot of things that seem like adaptive things to do with pain that do involve some more positive motion. So particularly those guarding motions. Um, so it's not just that, so take a cut or something. It's not just that I don't bang the cut on uh, on the wall or something. But I also tend to, you know, if I see something come close to it, I'll also, you know, put my hand to protect it and so on. And so I wanted something that would capture that broader sense where you may have some positive motions that will also protect the affected area. So that's why I moved more towards this kind of positive imperative towards to protect. Although in the majority of cases, what it, you know, what protection will involve will be largely a lack of use or a lack of motion. Okay. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the more contentious things I, I want to get to is the distinction to draw, obviously, because you're you're giving a pure imperative theory, so um the the content of, of a pain is this is this command, you know, protective imperative, um, and the painfulness of pain becomes something contingent. And that's you know, philosophically that's a very very contentious thesis. But before before we get to that issue momentarily. Um, you also briefly um, sort of distinguish your imperative account from a much more uh, uh, maybe philosophically common, I don't know, outside of philosophy, but just the idea that, well, what pains do uh, is to inform us of tissue damage. So it's a more, mm. I think you use the term representationalist. You don't dwell on other accounts so much, but it might be helpful for you to, you know, say something about about um, this, you know, at least intuitive alternative one that's been that's been around in a sense um, that it's that the if if pain has a function, the function is to is to inform us of tissue damage rather than command us to do something. Yeah, right. So I think um, that is a common view. And I think that's also, you know, it's something I hear from ordinary people as well, the idea that what, you know, just as visual sensations are there to inform us about the visual world, uh, things like pain are there to inform us about facts about our body. And what they inform us about is that something's cut or hurt or damaged or disturbed or something like that. Um, so in philosophy, this is often associated with representationalism, although... The, there are many ways in which a pain might represent damage, so that's a kind of big tent. Uh, I do think that's wrong, and actually, you know, arguing against that, I should say one of the features of the book is my main goal was to present imperativism as an attractive and coherent picture, especially since people often think that it's attractive but not coherent. <laughs> um, so some of it is a sort of uh, a lot of it is defense, and so I don't do. Um, in the book, a ton of the really detailed discussion of other positions other than to explain why mine is better. So it's a very, like, it's a polemical book in that sense. But I do talk a fair bit about representationalism because I think that's probably the going position, at least if you want to be a naturalist, as I do, ultimately about something like pain sensations. So representationalism, I have a few considerations in the book about this. Um, 
One, I think it's actually when you start thinking about the sort of pains you have, uh, it turns out pains are not nearly as informative as we would like them to be. Uh, so even though I hurt, uh, so for example, an example I use a lot, uh, I do a lot of weightlifting, uh, and the next day I'm often genuinely confused. I'm always sore, but I can be genuinely confused about whether it's ordinary post-exercise pain or whether I've actually hurt something. Um, I don't know. And in some sense, and this is the sort of intuition that imperativist theory is supposed to capture, in some sense, it actually doesn't matter at all what's going on, right? All that matters in terms of my body uh, is that uh, I rest and don't use that muscle so that, you know, whatever's wrong can fix itself. So I think pains tend to be not particularly informative. And of course, they are very sort of directly and obviously motivating. Uh, and so that's a reason, and that's all, that's an a disanalogy with, say, visual sensations that many people have noted as an obstacle for representationalism generally. Uh, so imperativism wants to say, yeah, look, uh, pains very much are very dislike representations. They motivate us. They don't inform. But that's precisely what imperatives do. And so that's why we should move to imperative content. Okay. So um, to pick up on the comment on directly motivating, um, this this does give me a way to raise the issue which I mentioned just before about the the contentiousness of the imperative theory in the sense of distinguishing between pain and painfulness or, or suffering. Um, you have you have two chapters, you address the issue, you know, at, at different parts of the book. Um, so it's obviously something that, that is um, very important to 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 um, to address, um, could you say something first, just to lay the groundwork uh, of of our discussion? Um, how you see the relationship between pain and painfulness? And let me let me be specific about two sort of sub questions. Is um, it would seem? I mean, that first of all, uh, intuitively, from a philosophical point of view. Many philosophers identify pain with with the painful feeling, um, and this, of course, reverberates in a lot of different ways in philosophy of mind. Um, uh, so, making that sort of distinction is is immediately going to be contentious. Um, but there's also what you just mentioned in terms of the directly motivating from an intuitive point of view, n- not necessarily a philosophical point of view, but certainly intuitively the painfulness seems to motivate you. I mean, that's what got you to you know respond when you you know hit a soft body part against a table um that's what got you doing what you're doing or at least that's way that's the way it seems and on your view there has to be there has to be some sort of difference between the painfulness uh and then the pain which is motivating you if these are only contingently you know, related okay mm-hmm. so if you could you know kind of just that that ball of questions about the relationship between those two. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, and as you rightly say, and I put it in the book, there is, I want to make this distinction between pain or what we sometimes call, when we want to mark it off in English, I think, 
we call phys- we'll sometimes say physical pain. Um, not in the sort of philosopher's sense of physicalist, but just you know, ordinary folk will say, well, it's you know, physical pain as contrasted with emotional pain, say. Um, and then there's this, what I call suffering or hurt or painfulness, or in general, the, you know, the fact that pains feel bad, which as you really point out, I mean, many people have thought as uh, the kind of the definitive thing about pains. That's why we don't like pains. That's why, you know, that's the role pain plays in ethics and so forth. Um, now, I do think, so I spend a lot of time on, this, on the book because on the one hand, I do think there's an important distinction between the two, and I'll talk about that in a second. I also think that the imperative has to say that uh, there's an important distinction between the two. And this came, you know, originally this came as, I think, an objection that people would bring up to imperativism that I've now embraced as a virtue. So, because <clears throat> the idea is take some of the other, what I think of as imperative sensations. So all these bodily sensations like hunger or thirst or the need, you know, the need to breathe, something like that. Um, mild hunger, I think, uh, does not feel particularly bad. It's not, it's certainly not painful. It doesn't make you suffer. Uh, you might not want to have it more than you want to have it, but it's not a, it's not a bad feeling in that sense. And well, that'll confuse it. I mean, some, sometimes it might even be a pleasant feeling, but in any case, you know, if hunger is an imperative, uh, then it seems like imperatives don't necessarily feel bad. So there's a question, uh, why is it that pains do? And I think, and I get in the book that, of course, although most pains feel bad, in fact, that's a contingent relationship. Um, so I think this is something that the imperativist has to say. Uh, but I also think there's good independent reason to adopt the distinction. So with this distinction between, you know, and what I'll call in this context physical pain, which is what the book is about. Um, so the pain that you get when you drop a brick on your toe or something like that. And what's sometimes called hurt or suffering or something like that, which I conceive of as a, a second-order sensation that can qualify a huge variety of different first-order mental states. Um, so it can qualify pains, but it can also qualify, so for example, you can be painfully hungry, painfully tired. Um, it uh, often attaches to emotions, and people do often ask me about emotional pain. So you can be painfully lonely, you can be painfully heartbroken, Grief is a paradigmatically painful emotion. Um, I think there are probably, you know, aesthetic pains of watching a particularly bad movie or looking at a particularly ugly thing <laughs> or something like that. Um, so I think it's actually quite wide what could, what think something like hurt or painfulness or suffering. I use all these kind of interchangeably. Um, it's quite wide what these qualify. I think pains mostly feel painful, and that's kind of where the name comes from. And as R.M. Hare points out, he's got a nice discussion of this distinction from the 60s, ordinary English is in many ways ambiguous, which is no surprise, between you know, the word pain can refer to any of these or the conglomeration depending. Uh, but I think it's worth separating them out. So I have kind of I have a couple of arguments in the book about this. Here are I think the two most useful ones. One is just this dissociation argument. So I think on the one hand there are painful things that aren't physical pain. So I just mentioned a bunch of those emotional pains and so on. Uh, I also think that there are ordinary pains that aren't particularly painful. People tend not to be aware of these, but, uh, you know, unless their attention is called to them, precisely because you don't suffer from them, you tend not to think about them very much. So I think unproblematic postural adjustments uh, are the easiest one. So often when you're sitting, and this is actually a very important function of the pain system, 
Uh, when you're sitting, you know, you, you feel a little bit of pain, you shift your position, uh, it goes away, it's fine. Uh, if you don't do that, if you're in a situation where you can't do it, uh, it becomes very painful and ultimately very bad for you. But ordinarily, these are these kind of small, minor pains that come and go, and I think they're kind of the equivalent of mild hunger. They're pain, and they still motivate you, uh, but they don't feel particularly bad, and you don't suffer from them. Uh, there are pathological cases as well, but I wanted to try to come up with some non-pathological ones in the book. So I think there's good evidence that they come apart. And I also think, and this is kind of important for the argument, I think they motivate different things. So I think, as I you know, argued in the first part, physical pain, what it does is it motivates you to protect a body part uh, from certain kinds of harms in order that uh, it might, you know, in order to preserve bodily integrity. Painfulness, on the other hand, and considered as this kind of second-order state, I think uh, has as its object the first-order sensation and tells you something like, get rid of that first-order sensation. And these can come apart. So take in the, uh, in the book, I talk about something like being painfully lonely. Um, so you might think that being painfully lonely, there are actually two sets of motivations, and they can cross-cut each other. So if I'm lonely, what that motivates me to do, let's suppose, is go out and make friends. Um, you know, I can go out to the pub, I can join a sports team, whatever. That's what the loneliness motivates me to do. But being painfully lonely uh, motivates me to do things to get rid of the feeling of loneliness. And some of those things won't be things that solve loneliness. Some of those things might be, for example, drinking alone in my room or um, on a joining the French Foreign Legion or spending hours on the internet uh, to distract myself. If I do those things, I might, you know, as it were, push away the feeling of loneliness, uh, but I don't solve the problem that loneliness is pushing me to solve. So I think you get two different kinds of motivations there, one towards the mental state and one, as it were, pushing you towards the world that can be at cross purposes. And I think you actually see this with pain as well. So I think there's the first order motivation of pain, which motivates you to protect a body part. And then there's this feeling of painfulness, which motivates you to get rid of that first order sensation. Now, you can get rid of the sensation. And I think this is really pressing because, you know, especially with pains of recuperation, they can be there for quite a long time. So although you're you know, doing what the pain tells you, that doesn't make the pain go away. And that's important because the pain has to be kind of forward looking. So you have to, you know, you have to stay off a broken ankle, not just in the instant, but you also can't plan to do things with it and so on. Right. So the pain, or sorry, the pain motivates you to do things with the broken ankle. Um, painfulness might motivate me, for example, to take an ibuprofen or to take some morphine, or, um, you know, I've heard, uh, get a cortisone shot or something. And in some cases, those can, can actually be bad. Those can work at cross purposes, right? So if I get a shot of morphine, I might be more likely to walk on the ankle because, you know, I don't feel anything anymore. Um, cortisone shots, I've heard, can be sort of bad in the long run because although they reduce the inflammation, they don't, you know, there's something about the kind of damage to the underlying stuff. Um, so in any case, you get these two kinds of motivations that are, you know, although they can coincide in many cases, they're at enough of cross purposes that I think it's worth separating them out. So let me let me just kind of push back on behalf of the, uh, you know, person who thinks that they shouldn't be distinguished in this way. Mm -hmm. um, so you said earlier that, you know, you kind of talk about hurt 
and painfulness and suffering, and you kind of use those interchangeably. And you know, so the 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 pushback might be if I say, well, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute there. Um, it seems to me that maybe you're in some sense equivocating. You know, when we talk about something being painful, you know, we're we're thinking obviously paradigmatic paradigmatically about about physical pain. You know, that really you know of of which there are various types but it's it's that thing that causes you to not step on the ankle and and mm-hmm. you know protect your testicles and so forth or bend over um um and so if you call that like a second order you know motivation to get rid of the sensation somebody who thinks along these lines would say well that is the pain that you are trying to get rid of it. And, and if you're like calling the pain something else, you're equivocating in some sense on what we mean by pain or, or something along those lines. And, and to kind of press the point, if I have a, a thought, uh, you know, I, I once had a, uh, an accident. Somebody knocked me over in a in a ultimate frisbee game, um, very mm. very badly, and I landed, you know, straight on my stomach um, with my arm underneath me and broke the arm. Um, and it was painful, um, but you know. So now, of course, I don't play ultimate frisbee <laughs> for this very reason because it's like you know, some people just don't understand when it's a friendly game and when it's you know akin to football, and so. Um, so I have thoughts that, you know, don't play Frisbee, uh, you know, cause I'm protecting my body and, mm-hmm. uh, and on your view, it seems like that thought will be, since it has the imperative content to protect my body, that is going to count as a pain on your imperative account uh, but there's obviously nothing, as we would normally say, painful about it, about that thought. And so the idea is, well, if you're identifying the pain with with that imperative content or that state of um, with with that has that imperative content, you've kind of just, you, you know, you've you've changed the subject in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me see. I take, there are two things there. Let me see if I can address everything. So on the first one, I mean, you know, again, I, you know, I appeal to R.M. Harris' discussion of this about ambiguity, but you're right. And this is the sort of problem that, or, you know, the sort of fight you can have in philosophy where you say, look, you say it's ambiguous. I say you're just ducking the question. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I mean, there are a few that, you know, I do address this more in the book, and there are a few things. Um, one is I really think. You know, this story about pain that links it up with the other homeostatic sensations is, for me, one of the attractive bits of it. So that, because um, it does seem to me that biologically speaking, pain really does have this important role that links it up with hunger and thirst and so on. And it's not, it's not just the sort of phenomenology of it. There's a lot of good anatomical evidence. So one of the people I talk about some of the book, uh, the current pain scientist, A.D. Craig, has done a lot of nice work on this. Um, 
So I think that you know that's an independent reason to like it. I also think um, so. I talk about this, you know, Christine Korsgaard, who's far smarter than I am. You know, has this discussion about well, you know, it, who I think has your intuitions on this. And has this discussion about well, what do pains have in common? Uh, what could the you know the pain of dropping a brick on your foot? I can't remember what the example is, and heartbreak and so on all have in common. And she ends up very skeptical that there is anything that they could have in common, um, except maybe you know something like the feel. Uh, I mean, it, she goes back and forth on this. So it's a very nice discussion. Uh, but in general, people who haven't made this distinction between you know physical pain and painfulness, when they go through and try to say, well, okay, what's common to all of these things lumped together, they have a very hard time uh, spelling that out. So it becomes a, a philosophically very complicated and tangentious position. Um, I think it's Adam Swenson has a nice discussion of this. Uh, there's a similar problem with pleasure as well. So... <clears throat> So I think, whereas if you separate the two out, I think you get a very nice, clean picture on both ends. So that's a kind of philosophical advantage. Now, as for this question about uh, the contents, I should say, sort of, although I'm always glossing the contents with ordinary English sentences, like, don't put weight on that foot, uh, presumably, you know, obviously these are not going to be, well, maybe not obviously, they're not going to be English sentences um, and in fact, I take it in the book, you know, when I spell out the sort of more formal conditions for the imperatives, they're going to be quite a bit more complicated and they have a fair bit of internal structure. Now, <clears throat> there are two things to say there. I mean, just as a bit of background here. So the, 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 let me give you the quick answer, which may not be satisfying, and then the background, which may not make it any more satisfying, but at least explain why I'm saying it. The quick answer is the sort of ordinary language thought that you have when you when you think, oh, gee, I should protect my arm by not playing ultimate anymore. Um, and <laughs> just tangentially, by the way, one of the things about uh, working on pain is I believe I've now heard more broken arm and broken leg <laughs> stories than any other philosopher. <laughs> Uh, but in any case, one of the things you uh, get out of this, or sorry, the um, the ordinary English, language English sentence in your head, I take it, is going to have very roughly similar content, but in fact, the content of your pain is going to be quite specific um, and quite complex. And of course, you know, that's why there's a phenomenological difference. So in the background here, at least the way I set it up in the book, uh, I'm tempted by the philosophical position known as intentionalism, which says something like, in the weak form, phenomenal properties supervene on intentional properties or supervene on the contents, uh, intentional contents. The, the reason why that's attractive is if you've got naturalist leanings and you think that content can then be further reduced, uh, can be part of some naturalist reduction, uh, then you've got a story about how you move from phenomenology down to something naturalistically respectable. Uh, I would like that to be true. That's, as far as I can tell, the easiest way to do it if it works. Pains are one of the sort of traditional uh, um, traditional objections to intentionalism. Uh, for some of the reasons I mentioned before, it seems like they have very different qualities. Uh, and so the, my original work on this was to say, look, uh, one of the ways you can defend intentionalism, if you're so inclined, is to say, pains have a content, but let's distinguish the type of content and say, look, there's imperative content that does some of these and uh, you know, indicative content that does the rest. Now, there's this bigger question in the background with intentionalism of something like, well, why is it that having content at all is sufficient for uh, 
you know, being aware at all. Do you need something more to this? Is it the type of content? These are big questions, and in some sense, they are um, they're questions that I intentionally dodge in the book because I uh, it's not a book about consciousness. Uh, I think if I had that story, I would be. Yeah, I would be making more money and be more famous than I am. So I've been trying to focus in on this more specific question. Um, well, what is it that, you know, distinguishes pain from other sensations? What is it that distinguishes different types of pains from each other? Uh, and, you know, I think that's if you're if you're going at the book looking for a theory of consciousness generally or a sort of the thing that will convince you of intentionalism where you weren't convinced before – you're likely to be a bit disappointed. But on the other hand, I think, fully, if you want to defend something like intentionalism, the thing to do, as in fact many people do, is to go through and think more carefully and in a, this sort of detailed way about what the contents are and what their structures are and so forth, uh, and how that can capture a lot of the variation within pain, you know, within and between pains. Uh, and so that's the sort of thing that I'm... Uh, trying to do. Whereas, you know, your thought, there's some, surely some further story about why your thought, I should not uh, play ultimate frisbee because I should protect my arm. Well, that has a sort of cognitive phenomenology rather than a sensory phenomenology and so on. But that, that starts getting to things that uh, hopefully someone smarter than me will take up and solve. So, okay, well, I mean, you're kind of pressing on this. I do want to get to the, the, in- the uh, various intricacies of of the content, um, which you you give a, have a couple of nice chapters on on the variations there, um, but um, you know two things that uh, you know talk that dominate talk of pain in in philosophical circles, of course, you know one is C fibers, which which you don't talk about you know very much, um, so you might mention something about you know the role of c fibers in in your account of of pain um but also because the painfulness you know is and maybe this talks to the comment you just made about consciousness um it's also part of a traditional argument against you know some sort of some kind of materialist view of of the mind, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, for some sort of dualism uh, is, you know, we can imagine creatures that um, that have sea barbers, uh, uh, or I, I, I can imagine, you know, having having pains and not mm-hmm. having sea fibers, right? That's kind of where the sea fibers tend mm-hmm. to play a, a, a polemical role. Um, can you say something? You don't go into this much or mm-hmm. you know, hardly at all in the book. You know, As you just said, you don't. It's more just let's lay out the theory of an imperative theory um, and I will dodge these bolts for the time being. But I, I think at least for our audiences who are listening, these are the questions that are going to be pressing. You know, So I think, I think it would be a good idea to say something about C fibers and uh, and the role of pain in in, in philosophical arguments in terms of you know arguments uh, you know for dualism or against some sort of materialist view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think in terms of conceivability arguments, I mean, again, although this is not something I'll defend now or in the book, I, I'm on the side where I think you know, conceivability arguments tend to be a relatively poor guide to possibility. Uh, and one of the reasons why they tend to be a relatively poor guide to possibility is because the empirical world is very complicated and we can often 
um, you know, so con- ideal conceivability, I have no idea about. But when we, in fact, sit around in the in our proverbial armchairs and try to conceive of things, we often go astray in part because uh, things like pain are very complicated phenomena. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on. There's a lot of variation. There's sort of a lot of, you know, interesting and subtle empirical facts about pain that, uh, you know, we, of course we can become aware of, but we don't know. And all of those are things that uh, mess up our intuitions about conceivability. So I think, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to say, look, here are these, you know, and I, I'm not the first to do this. I mean, a lot of philosophers have done this. So I'm continuing the tradition of saying, actually, look, uh, pain is a very complicated phenomena. It's not this kind of simple, uh, simple qualia that you can rearrange freely in your mind. Uh, so that's, you know, I think I do take the book to be contributing towards that sort of project. In terms of C-fibers, this will now this will more be ranting uh, because I say, you know, everyone who works on pain knows this and is sort of frustrated by it. Um, C-fibers firing, which I, was either Place or Smart who used it, and even they pointed out, oh, well, this is not right, uh, but it's a useful placeholder, and so it's kind of become this shibboleth. C-fibers are peripheral fibers. Um, so, you know, they're the ones that take information to the spinal cord. Uh, so they're not even in your brain. It's like saying vision is the optic nerve firing. Uh, but it's not, you know, you might think, well, it's it's just a placeholder or whatever. But I think it's actually even, there's an even more important flaw there. And here, again, I'm guided by the the kind of two big names in uh, P. Wall and uh, Ronald Melzack, who spent a lot of time on this. There's still this kind of idea, what used to be called a specificity theory or the labeled lines theory, uh, that... You know, you've got pain receptors down in the skin. There's a single kind of pain fiber uh, that carries it up to the brain. And let's say, you know, there's a pain area that lights up when you feel pain. Uh, And I think that kind of empirical picture, the sort of naive empirical picture that a lot of people have, is one of the things that contributes to this feeling that, you know, conceivability, these conceivability arguments. Mm But in fact, uh, the pain system is extremely complex. So in addition to C-fibers, you have A-delta fibers, which carry different sorts of information about damage. Uh, but there are also a lot of others, so touch fibers, uh, or the, you know, some of the uh, A-beta fibers and some of these things that carry information that we normally think of as touch information also modulate pain. Uh, and as you go up, it just gets more and more complex. There's also, it doesn't seem like any particular single pain area in the brain. So pain itself is a very complicated and very integrative system. So it takes in a lot of information, both about what's happening in the body, but also in your current state, and puts that together into the sensation. Um, so this is uh, Melzack sometimes called a neuromatrix theory rather than a labeled lines theory. And I think once you start thinking about pain in this more complicated way, uh, that pushes you towards at least a more sort of empirically realistic view uh, that your philosophical thesis is going to have to account for. So that, I'm, I'm not sure if that entirely gets it, but that's sort of some of the things that are going on. Okay. Um, so let's, let's get to the content. You mentioned, you know, obviously the, the fact that you use English language sentences to express the content. The imperative content is not really, you know, that's kind of a, a shibboleth in a way. Um, uh, so the real schema Right. If, you know, again, this is just expressing the schema is sort of, you know, keep body part, you know, such and such uh, from this action with some 
uh, you know, degree of priority. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this is the, just the general bottom line schema. And part of your pure imperativist account, as you put it, um, uh, is that you claim that this simple schema, you know, with can handle all the different uh, parameters or different types of pain that um, that we encounter. Um, so differences in, in the qualities of pain, um, their location, uh, differences in the intensity. Um, can you say something about about this general schema for the protection imperative that is? Yeah. Pain? So, yeah, as you mentioned, one of the things you know, In the book, I'm defending what I call pure imperativism, where you've only got the imperative content. There are a few other people who like some imperative content. So Richard Hall and Manila Martinez have both defended this, but also have some kind of sensory or indicative content. So you have a kind of hybrid content. Uh, And in some ways, that's much easier because you can say all of the things that the representationalists say. um, So, you know, you can locate pain where the damage is or whatever. Uh, Imperatives are much harder. Uh, So... What I do when I kind of spell out the details of the content, and this goes over, you know, this is all very quick because this goes over a few chapters, uh, is talk about things like, uh, so I want the schema to have at least three slots that can vary to account for the three kinds of variation that I see in pain. So where your pain is, how it feels, whether it's a sort of throbbing pain or a stabbing pain or a stinging pain, uh, and the intensity of the pain. So intensity actually hasn't been talked about a lot. Uh, I rely on that uh, with uh, rely on work that I've done there with my collaborator Manola Martinez uh, about trying to link that up to sort of variations in urgency of ordinary language imperatives. Because although you know I said before you know it's important that these aren't the same thing that's expressed by ordinary language imperatives. But that said, I think one of the exciting things about imperativism for me is that there is a lot of work in linguistics and philosophy uh, on the properties of imperatives. And by focusing on that, so it's more than just an analogy, by focusing on some of these uh, properties of commands expressed by imperatives, you can find a lot of interest, you, you can shed light on a lot of interesting things about pain. So, you know, we rely on that work for intensity. I talk about how the location varies with the uh, body part that needs to be protected, and then the sort of qualities of pain, so things like um, burning, stabbing, and so on. Uh, what I argue in the book is that that should correspond to variations in what you ought to do uh, with respect to that body part. Uh, so sometimes, you know, sometimes people have this intuition like, well, a stabbing pain or a burning pain represents the kind of thing that would happen when you get burned. Uh, and if you look at the empirical literature, that's actually very interesting. So, like, you know, people report that stabs tend to have, be a burning pain. Um, <laughs> uh, broken things are often stabbing pains and so on. So these descriptors don't line up very well with the type of damage. And I argue in the book that that's probably there's better evidence that they line up with the kind of protection you ought to do. Uh, so that's, you know, that's the sort of, I think, the bulk of the, the more technical part of the book is going through these and trying to spell out that that content in detail and why we should expect that content to give you the variations of different types of pain. Okay. Um, so one of the things that, that, that does come up and has come up in our discussion is this idea that I think you mentioned it before, um, pain isembolia or morphine pain where 
um, where we aren't motivated to um, to protect the body part. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so when you when you turn to counterexamples to the to the theory, I mean, these are sort of obvious counterexamples of of cases where somebody one where where one would say uh, this person has a pain, but they are not at all motivated to do anything to protect themselves. Um, and uh, and that just seems to be a straight out, you know, counterexample falsification of of the theory. And there's also, mm-hmm. um, uh, well, I mean, that's you know, could you could you um, how do you how do you deal with the the cases of morphine pain and and pain asymbolia? Yeah, so I think it's right. You know, I think these are the really pressing kinds of cases because these seem to be ones. So with morphine pain, you know, as I was sort of describing with my broken ankle, you know, there, it's not just that it doesn't hurt anymore. Uh, so it's not just that you don't have this sort of what I think is the higher order thing. Uh, but it actually seems like people in these states aren't motivated to protect the body part either. Uh, and pain asymbolia, which is a sort of rare consequence of brain damage, uh, you do get accounts of patients who will sort of happily let themselves be poked and burned and so on. So it's kind of dangerous uh, to be that sort of person. But they will say that they feel pain. So it seems like those are pains that don't motivate any protective action or really anything at all. Uh, And that does seem like a very strong counterexample. So the story I tell in the book uh, goes something like this. So in any case, you know, we probably won't get a chance to talk about this much, but I talk about uh, commands are are always motivating against this background condition of accepting an authority. And so accepting the source of commands as an authority. And I argue in the book that we accept our body as a source of commands um, and as an authority. And we do so because we care about our body. So I think there is a way for the imperativist to respond, uh, which is to say, well, look, in these cases, what you have is a breakdown of the authority of the body because, uh, you know, I claim this, uh, this is still the, Many of us are fighting about this now. Uh, But there's a breakdown in authority because uh, you no longer care about your body. And I think what happens when you go and you actually look at the clinical literature on pain asymbolia, this is what impressed me, uh, it turns out that their patients seem indifferent to pain. They're also quite indifferent to any other threats to their body, or so it seems. So they're indifferent to loud noises. They're indifferent to people swinging hammers at them and lighting off flares in front of them. This was uh, 1920s in Austria, where you know, long before institutional review boards. So, uh, <laughs> and you know, and the 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 original patient, they've done this. She wasn't just effectively flat. So. <laughs> There's an amazing bit where they start telling her that she's a liar and a thief, and she gets very angry and indignant. Uh, so she feels emotions, and she feels motivated. Uh, it just seems like she doesn't really care what happens to her body anymore. And I think if you can get to that state, which, you know, for very good reasons, we ordinarily can't just think ourselves into it, um, then you would have pains that cease to be motivating, and they would have the status of there's still pains because you there are commands, uh, but they're commands that come from a source that you no longer care about. Uh, so that's a kind of a complication of the picture, but it's sort of, I, I think that actually captures these things. So certainly, you know, I talked a bit about my experience with morphine pain, and I'm a bot, you know, obviously I'm biased here, but the feeling was something like, yeah, there's pain, it's down there, and, you know, 
it's shouting at me and I don't care anymore. Like it, it can do what it wants because it's down there. I don't see why I should care. Of course, I didn't care about much of all. This is right. The, the kind of dangerous thing about morphine as a drug is all I want to do is just lay around and watch cartoons. Maybe that. Yeah. And if the cartoons went off, probably wouldn't have cared. So, um, so, but the, the important claim, and this is now ends up being an empirical claim in the book is that you're only going to get indifference to pain in these cases where you have a fairly radical breakdown, uh, of sort of, with the relationship to the body. So this kind of strong dissociative phenomena um, or strong dissociative phenomena are places where you will find this. You're not going to have it with anything less. So that it does make, although it's sort of crafted to defend imperativism, I do think it actually has, you know, reasonably strong and testable consequences. Okay. Well that there's sort of two linked questions in, in response. Um, I'm thinking about uh, leprosy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, you know, I've I've been to a leper colony, and I, you know, lepers don't, you know, they, the reason why they, they lose their fingers is is just because they don't feel, and it it, it they just, you know, it, they repeatedly injure them and aren't just don't feel it, aren't aren't aware of it. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't. So first of all, um, I I wouldn't see that they that lepers don't care about their bodies. Um, uh, so they're not having, they're not getting the imperative in any way. There's something wrong, obviously, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to be that the, the authority of their, the, the, the authority of their body has been lost to them, mm-hmm. uh, that they don't care about it. And this is not a matter of affective flatness overall. It's just that that doesn't seem to characterize what's going on in leprosy. Um, but then there's also the case, well, you know, how about the leper or somebody who compensates for the fact that they don't, you know, have uh, some sort of normal um, uh, the, the pain does not have its what otherwise would be its normal motivating force um, but instead in the case of leprosy or maybe some other things you use visual information mm-hmm. to compensate for that and um, uh, and so you you kind of express the the still you still have the care. You, you still care about your body, mm-hmm. but now it's your, your visual information or visual states that are telling you, um, you know, protect that body part. Um, mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, you know, how how are you going to explain this? You know, give this sort of authority of the body story for lepers, but then also, uh, can visual states then become pains because they are playing the function? that other, you know, normally whatever mm-hmm. pain system states would be playing. Yeah, so it's good. I mean, there are a couple of things to say there. So in terms of the the visual states, I, I think it's an interesting question whether you can have these kind of um, motivationally laden states in the visual modality. There's a lot of interesting debate now about how rich visual phenomenology is. But in general, what I would say, there's certainly not pains, although it might be painful, uh, and that's going to go back to the same question about that you had about your your broken arm and sort of uh, what distinguishes these things kind of cross modally. Um, but I think one, you know, leprosy or Hansen's disease, it's actually a really interesting contrast. So you're with say pain asymbolia. So you're quite right that um, they care about their bodies. They motivated it. What happens is, you know, people aren't aware of this. And Hansen's disease, you know, uh, there was this traditional idea that lepers. What happened was their fingers fell off from the disease. In fact, what happens is extremities get 
injured and because of peripheral neuropathy, uh, they're numb. So the numbness, it's just numbness. So they don't feel anything at all. Because of that, they're very injury prone and they don't guard, they don't perform this guarding function uh, sufficiently well. So infections set in and you get a lot of bad consequences. Now, in some sense, though, that's a really interesting contrast with uh, asymbolia because they don't feel pain, uh, but they still care about their bodies. So they do the best they can, uh, trying to substitute visual modality and other sorts of tricks. Uh, whereas pain asymbolia, you know, so there's a, another story about pain asymbolia that I'm responding to from Nikolai Grahek that says they feel pain, but it's pain is a composite state and they're just missing the motivation. Uh, that comes from pain. But you might think, well, uh, people with Hansen's disease don't have that motivation at all, uh, but they're still motivated to protect their body. So it's weird that asymbolics don't do this, don't do this thing where they kind of rely on visual information and so on. Uh, so that's the sort of contrast. I think in the case of people who don't feel pain, they are still motivated to protect their body and they can do it in these other ways, which unfortunately aren't as effective as the way sort of evolution has equipped us uh, with to deal with recuperation and so on. Whereas the striking thing about asymbolia or morphine pain is that you don't do that even though you've got plenty of information and know what would be bad for you and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we're, we're getting close to running out of time, but I just, so I do want to get to um, uh, one of the final chapters, which is on, not surprisingly, the the case of masochism or masochistic mm. pleasure, um, and these again are are kind of prima facie very strong objections to a uh, to an imperativist view because uh, masochists, you know, by definition, the idea is that you you are seeking to act in ways that will not protect your body. Um, yeah. So how do you how do you handle masochism? Yeah, so it's interesting. And I used to, you know, I used to have a quicker answer. And then one of the things that this chapter developed out of was thinking about it uh, in a broader sense. So the chapter is actually on, they call masochistic pleasures rather than masochism as such. And this is going to include things like, you know, really enjoying weightlifting or marathon running or hot eating things with lots of hot chilies in them. Or sometimes students will tell me about getting tattoos that they really kind of enjoy the way it hurts. Um there's also masochism, which is a very contentious and I think probably ultimately very heterogeneous sort of sexual identity. Uh, so many people who identify as masochists don't actually feel masochistic pleasures. Now, I say the sort of quick defense there as well, and really I take this from a great paper by George Pitcher, um, the masochist is not just someone with crossed wires who happens to you know get pleasure where we would get pain when they say get whipped in the backside. Uh, it's important to them that it hurts. Uh, And so I think when you find, and it's pretty clear when you look at first-person accounts, so the masochist gets whipped. I I will use the sexual case because it's, you know, the most fun. Um, They get whipped. They feel what I would take to be the first-order pain. Um, It also hurts, so it's got this second-order, you know, suffering, painfulness component to it. And because they've got both, they actually have to work hard to, you know, stay in the situation and not stop. Uh, So they are motivated, I claim, to uh, protect their backside. They've just got an overriding motivation to keep going. And that overriding motivation is there's actually then a third-order state of taking pleasure in the hurt. So one of the nice things about 
treating pleasure, you know, pleasantness and painfulness as higher order sensations is you then get this iterable structure. And so at least structurally, it's possible to have the mental state that, uh, say, pleasantness qualifies be something like painfulness. Actually, you can get the reverse, too, and what I call bittersweet pleasures. <laughs> so that's the sort of that's the structural story. And then there's a, a longer story about why you might find painfulness to be a pleasant state to be in in certain cases. And there I talk about the story about sort of uh, most of the thing that most of these things have in common is being on the edge of kind of being too much to bear. And you can link that in with various things like self-control and trust and intimacy, depending on the kind of masochistic pleasure you care about. So that gives the explanation of why it's there. Although, you know, one of the things the chapter does is also spell out further, you know, the puzzles that you can solve when you make this pain painfulness distinction and then talk about this kind of iterable higher order structure. Okay. Um, we, I think we're out of time at this point. Uh, so, uh, um, let me just close by asking, uh, what sort of projects you're working on now? Are you, um, doing further research into, into pain or are you moving to something else? Uh, what's, what's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, I've always got a lot of things going on. I do a lot of work on functional brain imaging and kind of methodology and psychology, but I do want to continue working on pain. So one of the things that I'd like to move into is thinking about how a theory like this might apply to something like chronic, treating chronic pain. I've said some things in the book about, you know, the problems with really long-term unsatisfiable imperatives and why they might be uh, particularly demoralizing. Uh, so I have a young son now, and one of the things I found is there's something about, you know, a kid screaming when they're upset uh, for an hour at you that's uniquely bad. And it's not just the bad of having a loud noise near you. It's this bad of not being able to do something about uh, this insistent demand. Uh, so that's a place where I think imperativism can link up. There's also actually a lot of work these days on chronic pain uh, that I think fits well with this pain-painfulness distinction because uh, as I take it, the argument about things like, say, chronic back pain, what you really get is it may even not be very much pain anymore. What you get is the suffering becomes quite intense because you're afraid of causing more pain or this fear of injury um, or re-injuring something. And so a lot of the people are starting to realize that the strategies for treating pain and the strategies for treating this kind of long-term suffering should probably be quite different. Um, you, you certainly shouldn't probably sort of keep shoveling high-grade painkillers at somebody with these kind of chronic conditions, at least as the only thing you do, uh, because that's not really addressing this underlying uh, problem about suffering rather than pain. So where I'd like to take this is really kind of linking up with people who work on chronic pain and other conditions and see if it's a place where we can actually bring philosophy down to do something you know, tantalizingly close to helping real people. Right. Uh, have, you, um, have you looked at uh, any work on placebos? Ah, uh, yes. And placebos, it's a, uh, it's, more time. it's a really fascinating yeah. topic. And again, that's a place where uh, there appears to be a lot of kind of top-down influence uh, on suffering. Uh, plus, uh, placebo effects are really quite weird, though. Um, there's another place that's really interesting with top-down effects that I've worked with some people at my or talked with some people at my home institution on Macquarie University. There's some people doing some good work on hypnosis, and there's actually some fantastic work done on hypnosis as a method of pain control, where they get. Um, you know, they get really quite striking results from it. And again, that's, 
you know, like placebos, it's intuitively it sort of seems very weird that just by talking to somebody in the right way, you could do such strong things. Cool. So, well, thanks again, um, and uh, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with new books and philosophy. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Karen. This was great. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Colin Klein, lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University in Australia. We've been talking about his new book, What the Body Commands, The Imperative Theory of Pain, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.